you have a, the handout there in front of you, I've entitled this message, The View from Salvation's Summit. And I've mentioned in the last couple of services that John chapter 3, verse 16 seems to be the very pinnacle of biblical revelation. Charles Spurgeon called John 3.16 the gospel in miniature. It's, uh, I've talked of John chapter 1 sort of being a, a super, um, super compressed, um, I guess, miniature of what is expressed in the entire gospel. Well, John chapter 3 verse 16 is sort of like a, a heavy element, a very compressed, dense um, package of truth and it is so yet it is so simple on one level that uh, to misunderstand it would be um, an admission of gross ignorance what cannot be understood about this for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life a heart that is in the right place, a heart that is not um, that is not hardened and dead in sin, receives that with joy. And yet, a heart that is proud and self-righteous cannot receive that truth, um, because there is some sense that I in myself must be worthy to receive that. The idea of a gift. The idea of God having to intervene on my behalf is something that is contrary to the human way of thinking. Well, we have uh, examined this peak from a distance. We have observed Nicodemus at the foot of the mountain, unable to scale it, unable to be born again, um, basically admitting his ignorance, saying, uh, how can these things be? And then we've seen how Jesus... Rather than brushing him off and, call, and saying, you don't get it, you're a teacher of Israel, he does say that, but then he goes on to explain how the Son of Man came down from heaven so that what cannot be understood by earthly man is revealed in the Son of Man. And it is not a matter of racking your brain to understand all the inner workings of the counsels of God, but it is looking upon the crucified Son and understanding that in that act of crucifixion, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who looks upon the Son, everyone who believes on the Son, will be saved. And this is the only requisite of salvation. And it is the very thing that we have seen that Nicodemus falls short. We saw that he cannot perceive what Jesus is talking about, about the spiritual birth, the re being reborn. He cannot receive it. And therefore, he cannot believe it. There, there are, he is deficient in all of these areas. And yet Jesus, rather than persisting and giving him another analogy of the spiritual birth, he basically, um, I'm putting it all together and saying, look unto me. When I am lifted up from the earth, when I am lifted up as the serpent, when I am made a curse for you, 
look on me, believe on me. And as chapter verse, chapter 15 says, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man lift it up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So now we come to John 3.16. If you have a red letter Bible, chances are this verse is in red. But chances are the person who decided which verses to put in red uh, made an executive decision and it's possible that he was wrong. Because the red letters are not... God did not um, give a decree from heaven saying, Thou shalt write these letters in red. It's assumed that Jesus spoke all of the words that are in a red letter edition. But it seems from the flow of the text that Jesus actually, the only part that is recorded of the interaction with Nicodemus, uh, it stops at the end of verse 15 with the Son of Man being lifted up and whoever believes in him was saved. Then what appears to happen is John quintessential preacher, someone who cannot resist expounding upon the truths of God. And you know that by all the seven-point outlines that he has throughout the, throughout the scripture, throughout his book. Uh, you have John intervening and explaining and giving the fullness of what Jesus said to Nicodemus. So it may be that Jesus did say verse 16, but it is clear that somewhere between the verse 16 and verse 21, there's a transition and John the Apostle takes over and he is uh, fulfilling his biblical mandate as a teacher to make clear the scriptures. So what we have here really, I think, is a sermon. Uh, so let's, uh, let's get into this exposition, this unpacking of what Jesus has previously said, culminating in verse 15 with the lifting up, the crucifixion of the Son of God, and that belief in that Son of, or that Son of Man will bring salvation. So I've got seven points before you, and uh, I don't want you to be too worried because I don't want to unpack in detail each of these. I'm thinking this will be um, more of a synopsis where we go through these, and then uh, we'll take our time in the next few sermons to go through and maybe unpack two or three of these at a time, just so that we don't uh, get overwhelmed and that uh, our patience doesn't run out as we try to absorb these things. So the seven points that we're going to address are the love of God, which is the reason for the gospel, the reason for the good news. The whole, by the gospel, I mean that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and was buried and rose again, according to the scriptures. That is uh, the capsule of the gospel that the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15. But the reason for the gospel is expressed in the first part of verse 16. That is the love of God. Why did God do it? Why did God give His only Son? Well, for His glory, yes. But it says straight out, he loved the world. We'll look at what that means. Then we'll look at the gift of God. That he gave his only begotten son. That is a ransom for the gospel. God had to supply what mankind could not supply. 
If we all wanted to pay for our own sin, if we all wanted to um, atone for our own sin, guess what we'd all have to do? We'd all have to die, and we'd all have to endure the wrath of God. But God loved the world, and he loved sinners in such a way that he gave his son as a ransom. Then we'll see that, we'll, we'll look at the people of God, the recipients of the gospel, that whoever believes in him, you want to know who a Christian is? You want to know someone who is, has the right to be called the son of God? You want to know who has any claim to the riches and glory that we read about in Ephesians? It is whoever believes in him. The people of God. Then we'll look at the life of God, which is the result of the gospel. It says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We're talking about a quality of life that unless you know Jesus, you have no understanding of it. John chapter 1 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, receiving this spiritual life means not only not perishing, not being destroyed, but it means having the life of Christ. When you think about it, the word eternal is used here. In one sense, none of us can have eternal life. Because eternal implies two directions. It implies without beginning and without end. And we know very well all of our lives had a beginning. But the life of Christ had no beginning. In the beginning was the Word. In the be- before, there, the, before there was a beginning, the Word was. And at the end, the Word will be. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. And that quality, the life of Christ, becomes ours through the gospel. So that's the result of the gospel. We live the life of Christ. We'll look at the purpose of God, which is the reconciliation of the, go- of the gospel. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Opposites. You've got condemned, which is the world abiding under the wrath of God. And then because Jesus comes into the world, there is a rescue that happens. Not only is there not condemnation, but there is a deliberate, specific, surgical rescue out of bondage, out of sin, out of death that is affected only through Jesus Christ. And that enemy of God is made a friend of God. That death is turned into life. That alien has been made a son. That's the reconciliation of the gospel. That is the purpose of it. That men might be brought to God. And men might be brought back to God. Then there's the condemnation of God, the rejection of the gospel. This is the, this, you know, many people, they stop at verse 16 and they revel in the love of God and his free gift. They revel in the reconciliation. 
but to consider the consequences of rejecting this gospel. To consider that God, while he is a God of love, he is also a God of justice. And that justice includes wrath. That justice includes condemnation. And the world, as expressed in verse 1, for God so loved the world... does not mean that God will save every living creature in this world. There are those who are condemned. So it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Imagine Nicodemus hearing this. I don't know that he heard this. I think this is John talking later on. But Jesus basically said, you don't believe. Now here's John saying, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only Son of God. What anguish that would create in the heart of someone who wants to believe or is trying to understand but but is kind of pounding his head against the wall because he doesn't get it. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And finally, we'll look at the light of God, the revelation of the gospel. You know, you know why many people run from the gospel and, and many people, if they had the opportunity when they hear the gospel, begin to preach, would, would hold their ears and begin uh, screaming loudly so they couldn't hear I've seen it when the gospel is presented maybe at a Christian concert and there's, there's a, a mixed group of people there. You can see the agitation rising as the gospel comes, becomes more and more clearly expressed to the point that there's, there's people that are um, uh, doing all manner of... The, they're either walking away or they're... Um, Engaging with their neighbor. Um, I've I've seen people intentionally distract other people when the very essence and the core of the gospel is about to be presented. Um, But people don't like the light. Unbelievers don't like the light. They don't want to hear it. Because it reveals. It reveals the truth. It reveals the nature of their heart. But there's a difference between a person who is proud and who is holding on to their own righteousness and therefore holding on to their justification of their own sin. And a person who is willing to come into the light because the light reveals truth. And they agree with Jesus that the truth will set them free. And they are willing to come into that truth and into that light no matter what the consequence. They want to be seen as they are and throw themselves on the mercy of God and understand and come to Him in faith, responding to the truth that is being presented to them. Well, I've kind of preached the whole sermon already, but we'll go back to the beginning and we'll begin with the love of God. The reason for the gospel. For God so loved the world. The way that this passage is often preached is, For God so loved the world. God loved the world so very, very much. 
He was so deeply in love with the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then, well, I'll get to that second part later. But, so God, but the idea for God so loved the world, it really is not to express um, the emotional intensity of God's love for the world. It is rather to say this, God loved the world in such a way in such a way. This is how God demonstrated his love for us. Now, there's another scripture that says, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that is the sense here. God loved the world in the following way. So everything else follows and comes after. The basis of the whole gospel, of the whole plan of redemption, is the love of God. John is the only gospel writer that really highlights this as a motivation for preaching of the gospel. The love of God. This kind of love, it, it's, it's a notch deeper than we normally think of. We, we are familiar with um, the kind of brotherly love which means there is some sort of reciprocal relationship. Somebody um, is attached to me or connected with me in a loving relationship. That person plays their part. I play my part. We have this give and take love relationship. The love of God that is spoken of here is agape love. It is not phileo, which is brotherly love. It is agape, spiritual love, unconditional love. God unconditionally, unreservedly, and undeservedly love the world. And what is meant by the world? Well, the way this passage is often preached, the world means God loves every single person in the world equally. And therefore, God equally desires and labors for the salvation of every man, woman, and child. Well, that is uh, certainly one of the possible uses of the word world, or cosmos. It literally means the whole created order, the whole universe. But John uses it in at least 14 different ways throughout his book. And so to pin it down and say it is only one of those, it's a, it's a little bit risky. What I do believe it, said, it indicates here is that God indeed does love his entire created order. That God does indeed love every man, woman, and child in the sense that we are all of his creation, that he has given his son Jesus to redeem and to bring about the ultimate destruction of this present world, but out of that to preserve a people for himself and then to bring a new heaven and a new earth rather than just destroy it altogether. So God so loved the world now we have a problem here. If we look at the rest of John's writings, there seems to be a contradiction. Because of all the writers, 
with the exception perhaps of, of James, who is very much on the same page. Uh, John makes a special point of laying out the problem and the peril of loving the world. John 2 verse, 1 John 2 verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if you look at this, it seems to say that God loves the world, but we're not allowed to. God so loved the world. God, but if you look at the whole context, you see God loves the world in a redemptive way, not in a participatory way. When we love the world, we can't help but get involved in it and participate in it and enjoy the things the world enjoys. God loves the world in a different way altogether, in a way that he is going to do whatever it takes to purchase for himself people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. God, in one sense, he loves the world enough to cause his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. He loves his world enough to give every man, woman, and child life and breath. He loves the world enough to withhold his justice and to restrain the evil of man so we don't all kill each other. And he loves the world enough that he is willing to specifically draw people out of the world and make them his own. So the love of God is the reason for the gospel. And there's the gift of God. The ransom of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's another reference in scripture to someone giving his only son. Remember the story? Who am I thinking of? Abraham. Okay. God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and present him, give him, before, give him to me as a sacrifice. And really the, the parallel here is quite striking. Abraham really had two sons, didn't he? Two, he was the biological father of two sons. One, Ishmael, who was his, uh, the son of his handmaid, Hagar. And there was Isaac, the child of promise. Ishmael came along because Abraham jumped the gun and went ahead of God and he and Sarah found a way to have this heir and rather than believing that God would supernaturally provide a son through Hagar's aged and as far as she knew and her barren womb to do this miracle. So in one sense Isaac was when he was born was a one-of-a-kind son. He was a unique son. There was something about Isaac that was special, that was miraculous, that was wonderful. When, when uh, our scripture here says that he gave his only son, and as the King James says, his only begotten son, the Greek word there, and this is, of course, translated from Greek, 
is monogamous. His only son, his unique only son, his one-of-a-kind son. What was the gift that God gave? It was the son who was one-of-a-kind son. First of all, he was like his father. He was God in very nature. In the beginning was a word, the word was with God, the word was God. That's a one-of-a-kind son. There's another way. He was the one born of a virgin. He was the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He was the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent. He, he is the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is the son that God gave. No other human being would do. It had to be an absolutely perfect human being. It had to be a lamb without blemish, without spot. It had to be a man who could not only take upon himself all the sins of the world, but a man who in himself knew no sin. So that he could legitimately offer his life as a ransom for many. It also had to be a man who had in himself the authority to take his life up again once it was taken from him, or once, once he laid it down. To lay down his life, take it up again, and then in authority advocate for the forgiveness of the sins that he come to die for. The gift of God. He gave himself as a ransom for many. He gave himself in order to buy, purchase for God, people. To purchase out of the domain of sin and darkness. To purchase out of the prison of the wrath of God, men and women and children. And to present them to the Father as righteous and holy and pure because of the forgiveness of sin and because of this Holy Spirit, the new life that was given. So the love of God is a reason for the gospel. The gift of God is the ransom of the gospel. Now we get to a very controversial part. The people of God. The recipients of the gospel. John 3.16 is very often used to proclaim the universal atonement That the the death of Jesus Christ is intended for every single person. And that the death of Jesus Christ makes salvation available to every single person on the earth. It is really and truly available. And that anyone has the ability to come and to receive this and to be saved. And that would be, if this were perhaps the only verse... On the subject, we might think that. But we have, if you read through the rest of the Gospel of John, you have the Father giving people to the Son. And whoever, and the Father drawing people 
to the Son. And whoever comes to me and is drawn by the Father, I will in no wise cast out. You have, you have Jesus praying in John 17 that none of those would be given to him that are given to him would be lost. So there is something else here besides this offer and this invitation to believe the gospel, to believe the good news. There is also the sovereign hand of God in choosing and drawing and giving to the Son. I'm going to use the word, His elect. Those people who are chosen. Now you look at this and say, well, what does this verse have to do with elect or of God sovereignly choosing? It says, whoever believes in Him. That seems to me to say that anybody who wants to believe, anybody who chooses to believe, will be saved. It doesn't say that. It says whoever believes. Whoever believes. It's not the emphasis is not on the action or the capacity to believe. The emphasis is on the fact of belief. And really, if you were to read it literally, um, grammatically, as it occurs in, in the Greek, you'd, ha- you'd have something like this. That all, that all of the ones, all of the believing ones in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we're talking about a group of people who are the believing ones, who then... Because they are the believing ones, they receive this eternal life. And they are spared the wrath of God. They will not perish. Now, I'm not going to belabor this too much. I do believe that in this verse, there is a a beckoning. You want to... You want to be... Have peace with God. You want salvation... You need to come to him and believe. But this verse gives you no ability to come to him and believe. Just, you don't have any more ability to do that than you, before you were a, a, a twinkle in your father's eye, before, that you could somehow plan to be born. That is not your initiative, it is God's initiative. For God so loved the world that he gave that whoever believes... They have eternal life. So, the people of God are the recipients of gospel. And as we go through John, we're going to see that this is, this is not that the, the world, that every single person in the world um, is capable of responding to this offer. We have this very specific drawing to the Father by the Son uh, that, that, that happens. Let's look now, now at number four. The life of God, the result of the gospel. Whoever believes in him should not perish, should not perish, should not come to utter destruction, should not go to hell, but have eternal life. What a a wonderful thought that everyone who believes in him, everyone who lives a life of faith, who walks by faith, who walks by the Spirit, has no condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. 
There is wonderful assurance in that, isn't there? In Romans chapter 1, we read, There is therefore now, or Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Christ Jesus? Well, let's look at uh, John chapter 1, verse uh, 12. Well, let's look at verse 11 and 12. He was in the world, Jesus was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Notice we're talking about the world again, okay? He was in the world, the world did not receive him, the world did not know him. And yet, in some wonderful way, God loves this world. Now he's going to make a distinction, okay? There's the world, which includes everybody, everyone in the world. But then there's a specific world within the world, where God gives his attention and it says, but, so he came to his own, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, the life of God... the right to be called the sons of God. This is the result of the gospel. There are those who perish for lack of knowledge. There are those who perish for lack of relationship, lack of sonship. And there are those who are given life. Let's go to number five, the purpose of God. Christ came into the world to save sinners. The purpose of God is a reconciliation of the gospel. The gospel is all about reconciliation. It's about taking an enemy of God, a one who is by nature hostile toward God, the one who, according to Romans chapter, chapter uh, 8, who is of the flesh and therefore cannot please God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter, um, chapter 3, chapter 2, pardon me, um, one who cannot receive the things of the Spirit because he is natural, a natural man. Well, the gospel changes all that because it changes the heart. It tur- turns the natural person, the natural man, into a spiritual person. It turns the dead person into a living person. It turns a condemned person into a rescued person. It... In- it- turns the, soul, the person who sold under sin into a ransomed person. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Now, by the way, in one sense, the world is condemned. But God didn't send his son to condemn the world. He sent his son to save the world. But in order that the world through him might be saved. This is the purpose of God. Christ came into the world to save sinners. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
His whole purpose is reconciling sinful man to the holy God. And without his work, without his finished work, without the it is finished that came from the cross, from the lips of Christ, we would still be separated, we would still be enemies, we would still be condemned. Here's where the hope is for Nicodemus. Even though it says, whoever believes not is condemned already. The hope for everyone is, even though you're condemned already, you're in good company because the entire world is condemned until they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's hope. There's hope. Let's look now to the condemnation of God. The rejection of the gospel. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. What a wonderful thought. You believe in Jesus. You truly believe in Jesus. To the point where his spirit has moved into your life. And given you a new heart. And moved you along as the wind changed your very nature, you are not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What is the name of the only Son of God? It is Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. That means I'm not that means nothing else is. That means salvation is of the Lord. The name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And of course, the title. There's Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Anointed one. The one sent by God. So God is salvation. And Jesus Christ is is the one sent by God to accomplish his purpose of salvation. That is what a person needs to believe in order to be saved. And then, so, anyone who does not believe that stands condemned. You do not believe that right now. You stand condemned. You are still under the wrath of God. You are still in your trespasses and sins. And if you were to have your life taken from you this day, you would not be with Jesus in paradise. You would be awaiting judgment. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds were evil. Well, here's Nicodemus. And as I say, I don't know if he's hearing this. I don't know whether Jesus spoke these words to him. It seems like John is writing this later. But here's Jesus. Here's Nicodemus. And he's just been told, you cannot believe. You don't perceive. You don't receive. You don't believe. Now the implication is really strong. You're condemned already because you do not believe. That is the fear of God that needs to settle upon an unbelieving heart. 
The understanding that as you are right now in your own righteousness, if you're a Pharisee or if you're a Republican, I said publican, not Republican. If you're a Pharisee or if you're a tax collector, okay? You are, you stand condemned if you're depending upon anything other than the salvation of Jesus Christ. And the other part here is the light has come into the world. Jesus has come. He has made himself known. He has made God known. He has declared him to us. He has exegeted him to us. He is right in front of Nicodemus declaring that he is the way. And so, and yet the darkness, the world cannot receive it. Because they love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. All right. That's the part of the gospel that really needs to be presented clearly that often isn't. Our utter helplessness, hopelessness, lostness, and death our utter inability, incapacity to approach a holy God. And when we remain in that state, unless the work of God does his work of bringing us to life, we will be under the condemnation, not just now, but for all eternity. Well, there's a need for light, isn't there? There's a need not only that the light shine, and the light is shining, the light is always shining. The light was shining as the prophets wrote the scriptures of the Old Testament, and the people didn't receive it. The light came and dwelt among them, the people did not receive it. There has to be some mechanism, some way in which people can savingly receive the light and be brought out of their darkness and suddenly come to life. So the light, the light of God is a revelation of the gospel. This is our last point. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, but does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So you love your sin, you're not going to come to the light. You'd rather keep it hidden. You don't want anyone to know, especially you don't want God to be messing with your life. If you love your own righteousness, you don't want to come into the light either. Because in guarding your own righteousness, you are mocking God. Who said that he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that he might be made, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. To assume that we can be made righteous by merely doing good, is mocking the cross. That we can be made righteous by simply uh, performing better or covering up our sin more effectively. It's not going to happen. But it says here in verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. Now it doesn't say whoever does what is right. You would think that someone who is 
those who, who do wicked things hate the light, you would think that in order to remedy that, they would turn around and do good things. No, what does it say? Whoever does what is true. Other translations say whoever practices what is true. Do you know what it means to do what is true, to practice what is true? It means to see the serpent upon the pole, to see your sin upon the cross, to see the wrath of God poured out on the one who bore your sin, and to acknowledge the truth about your sin, and to acknowledge the truth about the Savior who paid and died for your sin, and then to be utterly humbled before this truth and to cry out to God, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it means to do what is true. It means you abandon all pretense and all pride and you humbly kneel at the foot of the cross and say, truly this is the Son of God. Truly, this is God's provision to wash away my sin, to make me righteous before God, to bring me out from under the condemnation of God, and to rescue me out of the kingdom of darkness, to bring me into the kingdom of His glorious light. That's what the gospel reveals. It reveals everything dirty and filthy and sinful and hopeless and dead within us. And it also reveals the remedy for sin. It says, look and live. Look to the cross. Look to the Son. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Look at the last phrase here. So that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. You see, when you acknowledge the truth of your sin, when, you, when you're, you're in no better shape than those Israelites writhing under the bite of the poisonous snakes. And you look to God's provision for salvation. And suddenly and miraculously you're healed, you're delivered from death. You know very well you have nothing to boast about. And that anything that was done in order to save you was accomplished not by you, but by God. And that is why we call it grace. It is undeserved favor. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So that it may clearly seem that his deeds have been carried out in God. Back to Nicodemus. How can a man be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb? Rhetorical well, not rhetorical, but he knows the answer is no. Of course you cannot enter back into your mother's womb. So he's saying this is impossible. This is impossible. Spiritual rebirth is impossible. How can these things be? They can be if they are carried out in God. And every believer, every truly redeemed person places no confidence in the flesh and knows that salvation is a work of God. You have nothing to boast about. 
Now, Nicodemus, his name means victor among his people. And I think his name is included. John could have just, you know, described him. He didn't have to give him give his name. So I think his name is important. Um, you know, there's other other gospel writers. Sometimes they just talk about a certain man or a rich young ruler, or you know, they talk. They don't necessarily give names. John gives a name, and it's victor among the people. And I think Nicodemus was a victor among his people. Why? Well, previously I've said there's evidence that John became a believer later on. Now, I may have overstepped just a little bit in declaring that with certainty. Because there's no, there is actually no verse that specifically identifies John as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It, 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 there's in John chapter 19, Joseph of Arimathea um, supplies the tomb, and he and Nicodemus go together. But it is Joseph of Arimathea who is uh, identified as a disciple. And then Nicodemus is just there. But I think if you look at the three appearances that that Nicodemus makes in this gospel, you can see that truly John has seen the light. Truly John is born again. Nicodemus is born again. When we first see him, it's in this chapter, chapter 3. He approaches Jesus privately. Comes to him by night. We don't know his reasons, but it's private. It might have been fear. might have been that he just wanted uninterrupted time with Jesus. We don't know. But it was a very private thing. It was a very tentative thing. It was a cautious approach. The next time we read about Nicodemus is in chapter 7, where John actually stands up amid, amid his own group of people, which are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are disputing with the temple officials because the temple officials seem to be giving some credence to what Jesus is saying. And they, they seem to be somehow accepting his message because no man ever spoke like this. So here's all of these temple officials. They're all excited. And the Pharisees are trying to calm them down because they don't want them to have anything to do with Jesus. It's a threat to their program. And Nicodemus, in, in chapter 7, he says... And I'll paraphrase because I'm out of time. But Don't be so hard on the guy. Give him a chance to say what he needs to say. This is how, uh, this is how we deal with these people. We don't just write them off. Give him a chance to speak. So, first of all, he approaches Jesus privately. Then he advocates for Jesus publicly. Now, there is certainly something going on here where Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus has given an openness to hearing his message. And he is not outright rejecting it. He is willing to stand at least an advocate for Jesus. But I want to say to you that you can approach Jesus privately and you can advocate for him publicly. And you do not necessarily yet have a regenerate heart. Charles Templeton advocated for Jesus publicly for many, many years and then radically abandoned his faith. He just Many, many people were saved under his ministry, but he walked away from the faith. It happens. But the third appearance of Nicodemus is in John chapter 19. And there we find 
Nicodemus, together with Joseph of Arimathea, taking the body of Jesus. Nicodemus has purchased 75 pounds of aloes and myrrh, and they're going to prepare his body for burial. And in order to procure the body, they had to get permission from the very officials that had, that had clamored for his crucifixion. So it might be worthwhile to read that. I see some of you turning there, so I'm going to turn there too. John chapter 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified was in the garden, and in the garden a new tomb which no one had yet been laid. So here's what I want want to get to here. He approached Jesus privately. He advocated for Jesus publicly. But then he attended to Jesus personally. By this point, he is personally identifying with Jesus. And he is doing it not fearfully. It probably happened at night, but when he first came to Jesus, he came by night. Now he's coming, and in his heart, at least, I see there's broad daylight. He is, actually, it's a picture of identifying with Jesus in his death. It's a picture of, of, of being um, utterly convinced that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was, the Son of Man. And you know what Nicodemus has just witnessed? He has just witnessed and seen with his eyes the Son of Man being lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. He has seen it with his own eyes. And what is his response? It's better than the Apostle Peter's response. His response is to prepare him for burial, to anoint him for burial. You know, even though this was the custom of the Jews, the aloes and the, and the myrrh, you know, binding the body up, there's only four places where the aloes and are, myrrh are mentioned together in the Scripture. And one of those places in Psalm, is in Psalm 45, where the, uh, the fragrance of the garments of Messiah, his garments are fragrant with aloes and myrrh and cinnamon. Then there's a counterfeit, a false, seductive, false religion represented by the woman in Proverbs 31, or not Proverbs 31, Proverbs chapter 7, who has prepared her bed with aloes and myrrh and cinnamon. It's a, it's a false 
It's a false aroma. There's a true aroma of the grace of Christ. There's a false aroma. Um, and then there's uh, also the fragrance of the garden in Song of Solomon. And the garden represents the bride of Christ. And there's aloes and myrrh and cinnamon mentioned there. But the idea that I want to get across here is I think that John actually includes the names of two of these things to show there is a definite identification here. Nicodemus gets it. Jesus is Messiah. He came to Jesus by night at first. But there is evidence in Scripture that he has come into the light. That he has come into the truth. And being willing to identify with Jesus in his death is evidence of that. So, have you personally attended to Jesus? Or have you managed to keep him at a distance? And isolate yourself from the truth that he so clearly proclaims. I invite you now to look to the cross, to look to the Son of Man lifted up, believe in him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for the faithfulness of your word to proclaim your nature and ours and to show us how a sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God. And I thank you, Lord, that you don't give us a many, many oper- uh, alternatives. You give us but one, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would move us to this point of utter humility where we acknowledge that indeed our only hope is the Son of the Son of Man who was crucified for our sin. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we'll be dismissed for our supper. Mm-hmm.